Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter. This year I've been doing an intermittent series called Legends of Adventism in which I converse with leaders about their life journey and lessons learned. Folks like Dr. Larry Garrity and Dr. Richard Osborne. Today, I round out a triumvirate with my good friend, Bonnie Dwyer, longtime Spectrum Journal editor and executive director of the Adventist Forum, and Winnegar, award winner for excellence in Adventism. Bonnie has announced her retirement at the end of this year, and so with a bittersweet attitude, I talk with her about her life, about the lessons that she's learned, and the ways that she has professionalized Adventist reporting through her example and her mentorship of many writers. I also get to learn a little bit about the Bonnie Dwyer behind the scenes, the leader in her local church for three decades, and someone who has always prioritized beauty, the beauty of relationships, the beauty in the arts, and the beauty that we find in our relationship with the divine. Thank you so much for listening. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Like all great epics, we should start in medius race in the middle, thinking of Virgil's Aeneid, Spencer's Fairy Queen, even Milton's Paradise Lost. I'm here talking with Bonnie Dwyer about her legacy in Adventism and especially her work with Spectrum for over two uh, decades as editor and even longer as a journalist. We'll be exploring all of that, including her early life, her love life, uh, <laughs> and uh, anything else that comes up in this conversation. But I have uh, Bonnie here. Welcome. Thank you, Alex. Always a pleasure. And we are looking at the first issue that you edited in the winter of 1999. Is Correct. that right? Yes. And um, I wanted to read the first line from your first editorial here, which says, Truth be told, I think of Spectrum as a place rather than a magazine. You wrote that over two decades ago, thinking about uh, what you wanted to do with this journal, um, uh, a journal that's meant um, a lot to so many people. And uh, tell us what you meant by that line. Spectrum has always been a gathering place. And I guess that's what takes me to place is I feel that 
it's where I have met a lot of people and enjoyed having conversations and listening and getting to know just the cream of Adventism. And so it has been a very specific place in my life. Uh, yeah, I definitely agree with that sentiment. So um, take us back to uh, 1998, 99. Um, you are putting together your first issue of the journal, something that you've now um, done over and over again. What were you feeling back then? In the fall of 1998, when I um, was named the editor, I went from California to Maryland to pack up the office and bring it out to California. The office was located in uh, Sligo Church office building, and the thing that I wanted the most was Roy's Rolodex. Mm. The amount of time that former editor Roy Branson spent on the telephone talking to various people uh, was significant, and he was beloved by so many people. And I didn't know all the people that he did, and I knew that being able to contact the people that were regularly talking to him was really important. And so um, the Rolodex I still have, uh, don't use it uh, like I used to because we now email a whole lot more than we call, uh, but that network of people was really significant. Sharon Fujimoto Johnson went with me back to the office and helped me pack things up. And we had some discussions back there. Dave Larson was the chair of the Adventist Forum board at the time. And the three of us spent some time talking about what we wanted to do immediately. And we made a couple of key decisions at that point. They had been publishing five or six issues, depending on how much money they had. Uh, and we talked about, well, it would be better to be on a regular schedule. And so we would publish the same number of pages as if we were putting out five or six issues, but we would do it on a quarterly basis. So we went back to the quarterly basis, but also enlarge the magazine to 80 pages as opposed to 64 or, and it has grown and shrunk, and, you know, just depending on the amount of material that we have ever since. The second major decision that we made at that point in time was, um, Sharon was planning to do somewhat of a redesign, and we talked about the use of art significantly in the journal in the past. Roy uh, appreciated art, incorporated it, in spite of the fact that it was a black and white journal and not easy to put art into and a very academic looking journal, but he had found ways to include art and was a great lover of art. And I, I thought that that was a major point for the magazine as well, that we were about all aspects of Adventist culture, not just, you know, theology. And so as 
Sharon and I talked about it, using art, uh, you want to be able to use color, and um, that's expensive. But maybe if we used art on the cover, uh, that would be just one place and and we could just work that somehow into the budget and get the most bang for our buck with it on the cover. And so that set us in set in motion the thing that now defines the magazine, which is the original art that appears on the cover of every issue. And so those were the things that were happening in uh, the end of 1998 as uh, we put our first issue together. Well, it's incredible that you've continued both that quarterly schedule, which, you know, is once you get on that train and you want to stick to it, it really defines a year. Um, and uh, it's a lot of work. And, of course, the beautiful art, which uh, so many people love. And so many artists have really appreciated the respect that you give to um, the visual. Um, all Almost immediately, you were wrapped up in scandal. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it did not take long. Uh, in the uh, early part of 1999, there were questions surfacing about uh, the general conference president, Robert Falkenberg. The executive committee was called uh together in very unusual fashion because that's an international committee and they were called from around the world to meet in Silver Spring. And uh, we had people saying, you need to give us the backstory, what's going on here. It's in the legal papers. And so we were flying, trying to figure out just what the whole story was. And when they said it was in the legal papers, we started looking at, there was a, a bankruptcy in California bankruptcy court in which Falkenberg was one of the people involved. So I ran down to Santa Barbara and went to the bankruptcy court and I was reading all the papers and we drove out to the property that was involved uh, along Folsom Lake, uh, actually not too far from my home. Uh, and there's absolutely nothing to see there. But <laughs> it was the property that that was involved in this whole thing. And it finally, we finally received a cache of documents that were sent to us anonymously that mm, helped. Mysterious. Uh, yeah, it, it was quite the thing. But uh, we hadn't even gotten into a rhythm yet on publishing the journal, and already we were having to deal with a very high-level um, kind of investigative journalism. And so uh, we were being pushed in, in multiple directions immediately, and we worked hard at it, and and uh, thank goodness for a number of good people. Brent Garrity, in particular, uh, did some fine writing for us mm. on the legal side of, of what took place in that whole um, episode of, of Avenist history. Yes, well, uh, so many folks appreciated the, the reporting that happened there because there were so many questions. Um, 
So I'm glad you said investigative journalism because that allows us to go back in time a little bit <laughs> and um, talk to us about uh, when you knew that you were interested in writing and journalism. What 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 um, got you excited about this career? I grew up in Washington D.C. in the 1960s. At the time, uh, new journalism was coming to four. And it was also the time of Watergate. And uh, journalism was riding high, mm -hmm. particularly Washington journalism. And it just was such an exciting world that was wrapped up in stories. And I love stories, so that it was a pretty simple, yeah, that's that's what I want to do. I worked on the student newspaper and on the yearbook when I was in high school and enjoyed it a lot. And so it was kind of an, a real easy thing to decide that journalism was what I wanted to do. Um, can you talk about maybe the story that you enjoyed reporting the most or that lingers with you as a journey that you went on that gives you a lot of satisfaction? Was it the Falkenberg story or some of the earlier ones or maybe something you did um, in your graduate program? Hmm. They've, the investigative work that I've done has always been fascinating but that's the word that I would use mm. to describe it as opposed to anything else. You know, I can tell you stories about um, one of the first investigative pieces that I was involved with, particularly for Spectrum, was actually before I started editing. The uh, Davenport bankruptcy that took place, the lawyer who was representing the various class action uh, participants in that bankruptcy was in Orange County. And he had contacted the magazine and said, if you have somebody who can come down here and look at documents, I'll let you look at documents. You can't copy them, you can't take them with you, but you can come look at the documents. And at that point in time, the magazine was being edited in Maryland. And so I had done some uh, reporting for the magazine and lived in La Sierra, which was just a short hop up the freeway from Orange County. And so I was asked if I would go down and look at those documents. And I did. The documents were lists of names of all the people that were debtors to um, Davenport. And so the important thing was to know who those people were, to look at those names and say, oh, he's a union conference president. <laughs> oh, he's a vice president of the GC. Oh, he's, you know. And mm -hmm. so... Um, I came back from that exercise in Orange County, and this was 
the first big investigative work that I had done in any way for um, in my career. And I, I just was kind of pondering the significance of all these church officials being involved in this um, Ponzi scheme. Mm-hmm. And as I walked into the administration building on the La Sierra campus, the business department was on the ground floor, and I walked by Wilford Hillock's office. He was chair of the business department, a very wise man. And I, you know, I just walked in and um, sat down and had a conversation with him, kind of told him a little bit about what I had been doing and, and um, not that I was telling him specific names, but just this research and seeing the um, kind of the underside of the business portion of the church. And, and I said, do you ever get discouraged about uh, what you see going on within the church? And he just leaned back and kind of smiled and he said, no, Bonnie. I don't get discouraged at all because my faith is in God and not in the brethren. And that separation of God from brethren, you know, the brethren try their best, but we're all sinful. We all fail and and uh, things go wrong. Things fall apart. Yeah. But that doesn't mean God isn't still in control and can't do wonderful things with his church. I mean, he, from the beginning, we got it wrong. Uh, And God is still uh, taking good care of his people and his church. And that, that was extraordinarily helpful uh, conversation to have at the beginning of an investigative career, because what you do see in the part, when you're doing investigations in in lawsuits and all of that, you're seeing where things fall apart and where people haven't acted in the best manner, perhaps for the good of the church. Uh, but it has never affected my love of the church, and I've been grateful for that conversation, you know, for a long time. That's so great to hear. I was wanting to explore how you keep that tension of love for the church, uh, love for God at the same time that you're being very honest about some of the bad things that have happened. And I think it's a testament to your career because there's lots of folks who have written newsletters, been published in various magazines in Adventism, um, exposing what they see as wrong um, as a way of sort of a gotcha type of journalism. And you don't do that. You look at the facts, but you also um, come out of it with hope. Yeah, and always. Yeah, and I think that's a a really beautiful legacy. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your, you know, I don't know, your professional uh, sense of the role of a journalist in Adventism? Um, what what is important to you in your craft? Truth um, and verification, making sure that 
we have a story right. Make well, let me interrupt you there if you don't mind. Just explain to folks what you do when you're verifying something like quotes. Um, how do how do you know? How do you how have you been able to gain the respect of people that you're reporting on over and over again? Well, the um, thing that I usually tell people that were that we are interviewing at length who will end the interview saying and can I look at the article before it's published and I say no uh, that isn't how we work but what we do want is it's just as important for spectrum as it is for them to be quoted accurately and so um, on uh really big serious stories like this at the point where we're talking to somebody will say we'll call you back and verify your quotes so we'll read you the paragraph before we'll read you your quote and we'll read you the paragraph after so you'll be able to see how we've set up your quote how we've quoted you and how we've walked out of it so that you can be comfortable with the way that we are quoting you. And we we want to get that quote right because it's just as important to us as it is to you for that to be accurate. And so uh, that's what we do when we're quoting. That's so important for folks to hear. And I think that's so um, such a part of the the legacy of of Spectrum and why folks uh, trust it um, from a variety of ideological positions. Keep going, I interrupted you. What other things are important for you as a journalist in your craft? Well, um, the church has been an interesting place to practice the craft of journalism because it functions differently than the government, for instance people who are political reporters and are writing about what is going on at a state capitol or in Washington, D.C., um, are operating under freedom of information laws, for instance, and sunshine laws that require the government to be open and transparent. And we don't have those in the church. There is no... Uh, requirement for them to share information. One can encourage them and say, you know, the church is the people and the people deserve to know what you are doing. And um, I think after Davenport in particular, there was a significant movement, particularly within the financial circles of the church, to update their um, standards of how they operated, of um, how boards operated, and the openness and transparency that has been given to financial records has been uh, admirable. And I would say Robert Lemon, who was treasurer of the church, for a very long time, uh, in particular, is to be thanked for the work that he did to make sure that church members could see at any time the money, you know, the, the details of the church's finances, because the members deserve to know 
what is being done with their money. And he would end every report to the GC with thanks to the members of the local churches who were the origin of this money. And that was kept very much in mind. And, and, um, so that transparency within the financial sector has been very helpful and nice to work with. There have been other um, aspects of the church where uh, there has not been openness and transparency and working to get information about what is going on within some of the committees of the church has been challenging and has not has functioned differently than anybody would have uh, thought from going to journalism school <laughs> because it was not direct it was a, it, it's a very indirect way of getting information but then making sure that that information is correct even while you're working with uh, anonymous sources and and all of that and so it's it's a tricky business yeah well, let's take a break from um, talking journalism and go even farther back <laughs> to the beginnings of Bonnie. Uh, where were you born? Um, Parkersburg, West Virginia. I didn't know that. Wow, West Virginia. <laughs> yes. How long did you live in, in West Virginia? Yeah. Two years, and I I don't remember it at all. Um, <laughs> Not the country roads. I you know I sing that all the time, and and uh, Tom, my husband, teases me about having one leg shorter than the other since I'm a West Virginia hillbilly. Um, but my parents moved fairly soon after I was born to Worthington, Ohio, and I spent my childhood on Griswold Street in Worthington, Ohio, just, you know, uh, one block long street that had the church at the end of it and the height, um, the church school next door. And one block over was Worthington Foods, where my father worked. And, uh, couple blocks in the other direction was Harding Hospital. So, um, Tell me a little bit about living there in Worthington. It's such an iconic uh, yeah, place uh, in, 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 and what was it, what was your, what was it like? What did it feel like for you living there? Um, it was a very safe world. It, you know, one block long street and you knew everybody on the street and all the kids played on the street that that was kind of you know in the afternoon everybody came out and we played kickball in the middle of the street or or dodgeball or you know whatever uh and um it was a very tight community also so uh that was centered around the church and the school and the, and the food factory and so it um was a, a really wonderful, wonderful place to grow up. Rick Rice also lived across the street from me and has written about uh, what a supportive community it was to his family. His, his family had some real challenges and the community, uh, you know, kind of 
took the family in and supported it and and um so it it was a great place to be a kid um can you talk a little bit about ways that that might have shaped you obviously it was a fun place if you're a kid it's uh sounds like a really social place um what was it like to be surrounded by multiple adventist institutions the institutions there were different than a lot of other Adventist ghettos, um, so to speak, because the other than the actual church itself, the institutions that were there were independent. They weren't owned by the church. So Worthington Foods was this independent uh, organization that played a huge part in the life of Adventist people, uh, but was not bound by, um, you know, the politics and all of that of, of Adventism. And the hospital, the Harding Hospital was a psychiatric hospital. And so you had um, a very different kind of personnel again associated with the hospital there as patients and 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 that whole thing it, it, it was quite a different um setup but one that was extraordinarily thoughtful and um supportive of the church i you know the the harding family for instance uh, they were pillars in the local community and and we had great respect for them and for their family i was always very proud to know the hardings and i remember as um a kid going to south ohio you know on a sabbath trip one time and in sabbath school somebody started talking about president harding and and disparaging President Harding, and I was aghast because they were heroes, and they were not to be treated in that manner. So, anyway. That's great. Um, do you have, or did you have growing up, a favorite kind of Worthington food that, uh, you know, meant something to you at all? Mm, I like chocolates a lot. Okay. You know, my, my dad was a salesman for Worthington as opposed to working in the factory or, or something like that. So um, in the summers, we would um, go on um, a camp meeting circuit. Oh, fun. And and we would do five or six camp meetings during the summer. And so, and I would give out soy milk samples. Oh, that's... <laughs> Was it Soyagen? Was that the brand? I can't remember. Mm, that sounds like Loma Linda. Okay, I'm sorry. Were they? Yeah, were they? Okay. Was, do you, you never cry. You never. <laughs> Chocolates and just like Lakers Celtics. You have to pick yeah. a side. Yeah, you do. Uh, and they're combined now. But <laughs> uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, well, it sounds like you had uh, a really. Um, meaningful experience growing up there um where did you end up going to high school um and how did you end up out there when i was in fifth grade my parents moved to maryland and my father because my father was given new territory and so 
I went to Tacoma Academy for high school. Okay. And um, we lived in that area. And, you know, being in the Washington, D.C. area um, affected my understanding of church as well as creating this love for journalism because all of a sudden I was in the middle of where the center of Adventism, you know, and yeah. uh, so. Um, I did promise um, it's important in an epic to also, there's always a love story. <laughs> and you mentioned um, Dr. Tom Dwyer um, and now retired. Uh, and um, I've heard you refer to him as Tommy which always sounds very sweet. How long have you <laughs> two been not just married, but uh, yeah. friends? <laughs> uh, we started dating my senior year in high school. Wow. And um, I guess the summer before my senior year in high school. And um, then, so so we've been together like 53 years, something like wow. that. Wow, what, so. what a epic journey. Yeah. Um, uh, can you talk a little bit about how you ended up in Southern California then and studying at La Sierra University? Sure. My father moved again. <laughs> <laughs> His territory got changed and, uh, he came out to the West Coast. And so, um, I graduated from TA and, and literally the next week we moved to La Sierra. Let me jump in there because this is, um, a, a fact, uh, that I've heard many times that I think is really, uh, significant, especially for, um, what you do with Spectrum and, uh, understanding, um, your generation who else was a major uh, or later became a major figure in Adventism who was part of your class? Well, I, we had uh, a really interesting class and, and Ted Wilson was also one of my classmates. So, and um, did you have a, a nascent political career in Academy as well? Did, have I heard this story before? <laughs> well, um, I it my political career went nowhere in high school. <laughs> um, when um, Ted was uh, a um, a born leader and um, had run for vice president of the student association, but lost, and so then. Um, you know, wanted the to run again as the president, and everyone assumed that he would be elected president of the student association. But the um, um, what do you call it? the faculty sponsor of the student association wanted the contest for the president wanted there to be a contest for the presidency. And so he asked me if I would run against Ted uh, for student association president. And I did, and I lost. Oh, well. <laughs> so my career went nowhere. Ted's Ted's did okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe that person knew something about the type of leader. <laughs> um, so thanks for going down memory lane with lane with me a little bit i um, wanted to talk a little bit about um, a theme that is also 
that I think is uh, really beautiful and important about um, who you are, and that is your love for the local church in Adventism. Hmm. Um, you have spent so much time uh, involved with reporting on the church, conversing with um, our greatest thinkers and actors, and really focused on the institution. No one knows the politics of Adventism like you. And um, I think it's so important that I think what makes you such a good um, analyst of the church is that you are part of a church. Yeah. And how long have you been a member at the Roseville Seventh-day Adventist Church? Mm, I'd say like 28 years, probably. Wow. That's such a commitment to a community. And you have held various offices there. Um, Do you mind just talking a little bit about the the roles that you've had in, in your local church? Sure, I'd be happy to. I've, um, I think my love for the local church comes from my father. Hmm. Um, to him, church was family, and um, you took care of church like you took care of family. And so, for instance, when I was a little kid, um, one of the things that our family did, I think the church members in Worthington took turns uh, with the uh, cleaning of the church. So I have memories as a little kid um, having a dust cloth and I would go uh, slide under the pews and dust the floor under the pews. It was great fun. Um, But so, you know, so that was kind of the family ethos was that you were a part of and and you helped take care of the church and so um at roseville it's been um a number of different things i was um sabbath school leader for quite a number of years and tom and i were uh pathfinder leaders when our son mark was in pathfinders and so just being an active member of the church has also meant you know that i've had assignments on the school board or on um, conference constituency or on the um committee to uh choose a new pastor because we've had several different pastors in the time that I've been there and right now I I do social committee kind of fellowship lunch kinds of things I've participated and it's great (laughs) (laughs) um do you mind talking a little bit more about that because I know you've written about the local church uh it always gives me a little bit of comfort to read your writing about the local church in the and it seems to come at least for me when i'm thinking about the global church and all the problems that are there or the challenges and then you remind me that um you know the local is where the individual is and that's where they're really forming their connection and you know maybe i'm depressed about <laughs> another terrible vote um, or action, and then you remind me that most people don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think that 
that one has to balance uh, one's view of the church and realize that it functions at multiple levels. And so um, what's, what's happening at the global level of the church is important, uh, but what's happening at the local level is too. And I think the thing that has really been interesting to me over the years is that they go back and forth actually in my lifetime in where the problems are. Um, it can be, you know, things can be going really well with the global church and and i'm i can be excited about what's going on and pleased with uh the progress that is being made and at my local church at the same time we can be we went through a period of like 18 months searching for a pastor at one time which was very stressful on the local church uh and transitions can can be hard on the local church but it has seemed to alternate uh so that when one was frustrating the other was not uh and so they kind of balanced each other out but um knowing that it functions at at multiple levels um is i think helpful and and realizing that um, the church is the people, and so that there's this huge variety uh, within the church, I think is important too. Because I people have a tendency to um, generalize. You know, if something, if one thing goes wrong, then everything's wrong, and nothing's right about what is what is happening and and they lose sight of of the beauty and uh the wonderful fellowships that's there that that comes from um being part of a community so it's a real blessing in life and and worth cultivating and hanging on to yeah absolutely all right. If you don't mind, I want to do a, a kind of lightning round of questions with you. <laughs> um, what's your favorite hymn? Um, tell me the old old story. Oh, good one. Do you have a, f- a book that you win- that you've returned to over and over again for inspiration in your writing? Um, any book? Um, I have a book of prayers uh, by a woman. Um, from Minnesota that uh, Virginia Reichman it's called um, the well is deep or, or living water I mm. think is what it's anyway beautiful book of prayers full of prayers with questions mm. that I love a lot uh, I also like uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel's the Sabbath mm. And um, Wendell Berry's poetry about yeah. the Sabbath uh, is very meaningful to me. I've um, appreciated quite a number of Adventist uh, contemporary writers like Richard Rice and uh, Sigvi Tonstad in particular have, have been very meaningful. Um, Chuck Scriven. Yeah. Those people. Um, you... Uh travel is there a favorite destination that you've returned to over and over um because you enjoy going there Hmm, that's interesting i enjoy um 
meeting people when I go places. Mm. And so um, I like various places and enjoy going to them. But the thing, when I get back from a trip, I tend to talk about the people. Mm. And so um, I, I don't have one in yeah. particular. Always know. open to a new conversation. Yeah, exactly. That's great. Well, um, I've got just two more questions for you here. One is looking back over um, your uh, role as executive director and editor with Spectrum specifically. What are what was some of the uh, what was a big challenge that that kind of um, plagued you uh, that um, you learned a good life lesson from meeting the budget. <laughs> <laughs> the real, <laughs> yeah, you know where the rubber meets the road, right? Yeah. Um, early on, when I first started editing, there was money in the bank account to do, you know, two or three issues, uh, and so. We did two or three issues, and then I'm looking at the bank account and going, and now what? Uh, and so um, I had a lot of stomach aches over the fundraising and the, um, the money side of things, and it took a little while to realize that God – had us in his hands mm. uh, and even before I realized that I had a problem he was working on a solution mm. and um, yeah so that's great well that's, you've led a stable organization um, as well as putting out such a, a beautiful product and um, my last question um, to you is what gives you hope as you look back on um the community that you've led and the community that you've investigated, um, what lingers as something that uh, springs eternal for you? Oh, the people, you know, people like you, you give me hope. Uh, uh, the next generation coming along is brilliant. And I know they'll um, take us in, in, uh, new directions that we hadn't even uh, thought of or, or uh, had any idea what was coming along and they'll get us through, so. Yes. Well, thank you. That's another example of the generosity of spirit that I've um, appreciated from you and learned uh, uh, from you. Um, I've always, uh, I remember when I, Met you when I was in college <laughs> and then came and worked part-time here in the office um, a decade and a half ago. And mm. I always thought you were um, so kind to everyone and so willing to um, listen to a variety of perspectives. So thank you for teaching me that and so many other things. Well, um it's been a great pleasure, and uh, you know, God, God is good, and yes. uh, takes good care of not only His people, but the things that they try to do in His name. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
keeping him first is an important thing. True. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move, and the poor, and the meek, and the hungry, and the lonely 